welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So my family and I are obsessed with the Olympics. Um, no shame in that. We, every year during the opening ceremonies, have a large Olympics party and then usually spend two weeks really tired because uh, the boys stay up later than we normally let them stay up. And then Colleen and I stay up way later than we normally stay up watching the Olympics. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about as I was preparing the message for today is uh, watching some of the videos they always show of the, of the Olympians in their training and as they're kind of preparing to compete and, and the different stuff they do. And a lot of, a lot of the training, especially if you look at the Winter Olympics, some of the training even looks nothing like what they actually do in their sport. And you just see them doing that. But see, what's interesting is when you think about training, you look at that, or, or any sport, if you've done any type of sport, is that, that training, you don't train and do drills to get good at training and doing drills. You train and you do drills so that then whenever, whenever the competition comes, when the moment comes that you've kind of, you've, you've, you've prepared your body to react to whatever situation is thrown at you. You've kind of created a new framework for yourself to function within so that then you respond to what needs to happen in the moment in a very natural way. And I think in, in some ways, this is how the ancient practice of reciting the Lord's Prayer during corporate worship was first understood. I mean, the Lord's Prayer um, is probably, I mean, it's most certainly the most famous prayer of, of all of Christendom. It's probably the most memorized portion of Scripture as well. We say it regularly, and, and it's been a practice within the church since, since her inception, but it's interesting, if, and you'll see from our, our, our gospel reading today, is that first and foremost, the Lord's Prayer was a model for how to pray, not necessarily words to pray. And yet, in the earliest documents that we have in church history, um, dating back to right around the time of the last apostles, we find instruction on the use of the Lord's Prayer within the church's liturgy. And in, within those instructions, it's not, it's not introducing the Lord's Prayer to the liturgy, it's assuming that that practice had already existed. And so, this practice of when the church gathers together for worship goes back to the time of the apostles, reciting these words. But the repetitive recitation of the Lord's Prayer every time the church gathered was not to be some magical incantation nor an act of pious repetition. In some ways, it was a form of training, joining our voices with the very words of Christ, shaping our own prayers by, by inculcating a new framework for our prayers. Origin of Alexandria, he 
was a theologian during the early 200s, argued vehemently that the Lord's Prayer is to be done in corporate worship, but so that it would be a model for our private prayers. So that as we would over and over again recite the Lord's Prayer together, that our own prayers would begin to take the form of Christ's own prayer. In some way, Origen argues that we learn to pray in private through the regular, regular practice of praying the Lord's Prayer together in worship. And many of the fathers also argued that the Lord's Prayer was so central to the church's liturgy because not only was it the model to shape our own prayers, in many ways it was to then shape our own hearts and our lives as we would pray together. And so over the next four weeks leading up to Lent, I wanted to just take these four weeks before we start into the lectionary for Lent to look at this most famous of all prayers. To look at the Lord's Prayer. And for this, this first week, um, I want to look particularly at the words that Jesus speaks as recorded in Matthew 6, verse 9. The ent- opening words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So let's just jump into it, and I just want to make a few notes on each portion of this so we can maybe better understand the richness of this prayer. It starts with our Father in heaven. It's important to note that he starts with our. He uses the plural. He's giving this and instructing this as a prayer of corporate worship, a a corporate prayer. And this is actually kind of shocking because in our reading, you'll see that in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus had just finished warning his people not to pray like the hypocrites. He just told them that when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray in secret. And then he says, and this is how you should pray, our as if we were to pray together. Um, This is just a real quick note, but this is one of the dangers of proof texting scripture and building your theology around a single passage because you need to allow scripture to interpret scripture, to shape and form our understanding. And see, the reality is, is that Jesus wasn't creating some new law that actually prayer should not be done in public or corporate. First of all, he wouldn't do that because he was a good practicing Jew and the Jews in their liturgy was filled with corporate prayers. They actually had a prayer book. It's in our Bible. It's called the Psalms. That was for corporate prayer. But instead, we see that what he was warning against was praying like the hypocrites. Who were concerned about being seen by others, being noticed and recognized. See, the concern was an attitude that he was speaking to in that moment. But then he calls us later on to say, here's how you should pray. A corporate prayer. Our Father. And I think that this, in a sense, it shows some of the value um, that the church has practiced since its inception of having corporate prayers. Praying prayers like the Lord's Prayer. Praying ancient prayers. 
There's nothing wrong with extemporaneous prayers. God desires us to bring those prayers before him and bring those prayers when we're together. But the problem is with extemporaneous prayers, prayers that we just kind of pray off the cuff, is is that I can't join you with it because I don't know what you're going to say next. And honestly, when I do that, I don't know what I'm going to say next. And so it creates a space where we have certain prayers where those prayers have been pre-formed and shaped throughout Christian history or from Scripture itself. And those prayers mean that it completely takes our attention off of ourselves. It really protects us from being a hypocrite because nobody will look at anybody in particular because our voices are lost in each other's voice. And in the Lord's Prayer, all of our voices are lost in the words of Christ himself. And he goes on and he says, our father in heaven. And this is, this is where this prayer becomes kind of shocking and it becomes bold. And it's interesting, again, because if you look at the next petition, which we'll look at next week. He says to pray about thy kingdom come, thy will be done. A prayer of the kingdom. And you would expect that if you're moving into a prayer that is about the kingdom of God, that you would enter by saying, our king or our Lord. Especially our Lord, because that was the common framework in which the Jews of the time would would enter into their prayers. But instead, he says, our father. In Greek, the word is pater. But this is likely a Greek translation of the Aramaic, which is almost certainly the language that Jesus would have originally given this prayer in. And pater is a translation of the Aramaic word Abba. Not to be confused with the 70s Swedish pop group Abba. Didn't land as good as I thought it would, so I'm going to scrap that one next time. Um, no, but it, it, you may have heard some, some, some descriptions of, of Abba and talking about it as this kind of like childlike daddy, you know, or papa. And that has become kind of a popular thing in certain circles, but it's actually not completely true. Um, yeah, Abba does carry with it a level of endearment, but it also does carry with it honor and respect. Um, a grown adult out of respect for another who was either a spiritual parent or true parent would also refer to them as Abba. And ultimately, it has to do with one's relationship to the one that they're addressing. But this idea of a father or Abba was Jesus' preferred term for God. And you see throughout the Gospels, he taught extensively about God as Father. How God cares for and loves his people. He, how he provides for them, redeems them. And so he emphasized this imagery of the God of all that exists as our Father. And even though it was uncommon, it wasn't... Um, wasn't normative, unlike some commentators, this wasn't completely new, Um, not completely foreign to the Jews. 
You see in the Old Testament that there are some references to Yahweh as father. And almost all of those references are tied to God's redemptive work. The first instance in the Old Testament in which God is depicted in a fatherly type of figure, as a fatherly figure, was in Exodus. When God told Moses that Israel was his son. And to go tell Pharaoh that he was going to redeem or rescue his son out of Egypt. Later on through the prophet Hosea. God reminds his people of their deliverance. And he says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And if you read the beginning of Matthew, he picks up on that language and equates it to Jesus. Not saying that this was a prophecy in the sense of we think of a prophecy that was speaking directly about Jesus, Mary and Joseph taking Jesus into Egypt. But instead pointing to the fact that the exodus that this is tied to was actually a foreshadowing of the ultimate reality fulfilled in Christ. That this redemption of his son Israel finds its fulfillment in the one true Israel, the redemption that comes through his only begotten son. And this is a, a, a reminder, I think, as we, we, we pray our Father, that it is only through deliverance in our union with Christ, by grace alone, that we can utter the words of Christ, our Father in heaven. Paul, to the church in Galatia, wrote, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. On our own, we have no right to call the sovereign Lord of all creation, the ground of all being, the one who reigns in heaven, our Father. It is only by the grace granted to us through Christ's redemptive sacrifice on our behalf that we can utter the words of Jesus, our Father, who art in heaven. It's interesting, too, is during the Eucharist, Many of the earliest ancient liturgies would preface the Lord's Prayer by saying these words, words that we use in our liturgy as well. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. As a reminder to the church, to the people, that, that, that to go to the Lord of all creation the sovereign of heaven, and call him Abba, to call him Father, is a very bold proclamation. And I think there is a lot of brilliance in Thomas Cranmer, who was the architect of the English liturgy during the, um, the Anglican Reformation. When he, when he structured the liturgy, he was very intentional to place the Lord's Prayer after we receive the Eucharist. The reason being is that through this whole 
drama of the liturgy. We come and we confess our sins and then we receive absolution. And then we are reassured by God's word and the proclamation of the gospel. And then we get on our knees and we confess that we are not worthy to come to the Lord's table. And yet, nonetheless, the Lord says to us, come, you are welcome. And then after we are fed, we feed on the spiritual food of the body and blood of Christ. Then after that, after all of that, he has us say, and now. As our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray because we have been assured that even though it seems audacious, <laughs> risky, and possibly wrong to speak of the sovereign of all creation as Father, we've been assured that we can be so bold because of the grace that is ours. Then this new relationship with God through our union with Christ and this proclamation of Father to address him as such is not only bold, but as I said, it's also somewhat audacious. Because if we remember, there are some other very famous prayers that Jesus gave that start with Abba, Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus overwhelmed with the reality, the literal hell that is before him. Goes and cries out, my father, Abba, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not too much longer he was hanging on the cross when he cries out. My Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, the reality is, is that being joined to Christ, able to address God as our Father, means we are also drawn into God's redemptive work. Our Father in heaven is not some disinterested platonic form, some some grand theological concept removed from the holiness and depravity of our fallen world. He is our Father and is the same Father who sent his only begotten Son into the depths of hell to redeem his fallen creation. And in our union with Christ, our Father might walk us down some shady paths into the darkness and pain of a world so that his glory might be made known and light will break forth in the darkness. Through Christ, we are adopted children of God, a God who enters into the depths of human depravity so that his wayward creation might be restored to the honor and glory of his name. And this is why the bold address, our Father in heaven, leads right into the heart of all prayer. The heart of our new longing is redeemed and adopted children of God. It's the prayer that his name be hallowed. Hallowed is the idea of his name being recognized as holy, set apart. See, whenever you read in the scriptures of anybody coming into the presence of God through the veil in the the holiness of of heaven, untainted, the, the realm untainted by our fallen Realities. You hear this refrain, holy, holy, holy. That's not just a rhythmic refrain. In, in um, 
In ancient Hebrew, there was no adverbs for extremely or very. So if you wanted to emphasize something, you would say it was holy, holy, which meant like very holy. In the same way as if something was extremely deep, it was deep, deep. (laughs) And you would double it. But they didn't have a place other than for God where you would triple it. God's not holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. We don't have adverbs that could even describe what that is trying to depict. And you see, those in the full presence of God on the other side of the veil, separating the heavenly from our fallen reality, recognize the true holiness of God. And yet in our fallen reality, his name is rarely recognized for what it truly is. And sadly, often by all of us, is in many ways profaned. And we see in the first request, before anything else is asked, that the core of our prayers, the core of our petition, is to be centered upon God's glory, that his holiness might be known as it truly is. And in many ways, as the early fathers were wise to acknowledge our prayers, do direct our lives, our worship, and our mission as a church. Despite our our failings and shortcomings, Christ, our deepest longing, our core mission should be that our Redeemer and God might be hallowed. That by grace, through the working of the Holy Spirit, our worship and feeble service might enable others to see our God for who he truly is. That his holiness and glory might be known throughout the land. The primary means through which his name is hallowed is the great redemption that is the very thing that enables us to approach this hallowed God by the name of Father. In Ezekiel, God tells Israel that one day he was going to vindicate his holy name. A name that he says has been profaned by all. And he said he is going to make his name hallowed again by coming and gathering people from the ends of the earth. Sprinkling them clean of all their sins. And then giving them a new heart. So God reveals his glory and holiness, enabling his creatures to hallow the name we once profaned by redeeming his wayward people, declaring us holy by grace offered to us through a profane instrument of death, enabling us to hallow his glorious name while addressing him as our father. So our father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. His familiar first lines are actually quite apocal and bold. When we pray them every time we gather, it should leave us in awe, granting great comfort knowing that the Lord of all that exists cares for us as a loving Father and has redeemed us with a costly and relentless grace. It also reminds us that we are restored to a father that audaciously enters into the darkness and messiness of our fallen reality to redeem what we have destroyed for his glory, for his honor, 
for the holiness of his name. So I want to close just reading a passage from um, a uh, famous New Testament scholar and Anglican bishop, N.T. Wright, commenting on these first few lines. And he write, says this, But if as the people of the living creator God, we respond to the call to be his sons and daughters, if we take the risk of calling him father, then we are called to be the people through whom the pain of the world is held in the healing light of the love of God. And we then discover that we want to pray and need to pray this prayer. Father, our father, our father in heaven, Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. That is, may you be worshipped by your whole creation. May the whole cosmos resound with your praise. May the whole world be freed from injustice, disfigurement, sin, and death. And may your name be hallowed. And as we stand in the presence of the living God, with the darkness and pain of the world on our hearts, praying that he will fulfill his ancient promises and implement the victory of Calvary and Easter for the whole cosmos, then we may discover that our own pain, our own darkness, is somehow being dealt with as well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue.